Crashing the War Party, where we hope to bring a harsh light to dark places every week in the belly of the beast, the imperial city of Washington. My name is Kelly Blahos, and I am joined by my longtime friend and colleague, Daniel Larson. Daniel, by the way, has an excellent newsletter at Substack called Unomia, where he writes every day on these issues. So do yourself a favor and check it out. It will definitely change your perspective, if not your life. Unfortunately, we are reminded once again of the U.S. imperial reach and the fact that despite its promises to the contrary, the U.S.'s limited target strikes against its enemies turn out to be neither limited or even successfully targeted. The New York Times reported over the weekend that a drone strike that was supposedly launched to kill members of an ISIS affiliate in Kabul last week killed 10 civilians, several in one family. Despite earlier reports reports that there were bombs in the parked car that was blown to smithereens, the man killed on the spot was an aid worker linked to Americans who was trying to get his family out of Kabul. So in fact, the very people the Biden administration pledged to help evacuate in the wake of the US military withdrawal are the people that we are killing. Dan, this is is heartbreaking, but unfortunately, a familiar story uh, in the U.S. war on terror. Um, I mean, what? I don't even know what to think here. Can you maybe lend some perspective? Uh, sure. And so the the drone strike that happened it was on August 29th. Uh, the, the the Times and the Post have both investigated. Uh, they they found that the drone tracked this uh, man uh, Zemri Ahmadi uh, all day. Uh, as he drove around the city, as he was doing his aid work, he was going, taking co-workers to places, picking co-workers up, uh, loading his car with water containers, and then delivering water to people. And uh, evidently, it was these water containers that uh, the drone operator or, or whoever was monitoring this uh, interpreted as explosives. And and somehow, uh, they they determined that it was a good idea to fire a missile into a densely packed urban neighborhood uh, to, to blow up this car uh, with this aid worker inside. And uh, I mean, the, the really horrific part is that as the car approached uh, the house, the kids came running to see uh, their father. Uh, and, oh. and there were other, there were other kids there as well. And so most of the, uh, the victims of the strike uh, were children. Uh, seven of the ten were children, and so this is a, a particularly horrifying case of the, the U.S. military getting everything they could get wrong uh, wrong, and uh, they ended up slaughtering ten people uh, who had nothing to do with terrorism, nothing to do with ISIS at all, and, and people who were in fact applying uh, to come uh, to the U.S. Uh, you know, in the hopes of, of getting out and, and coming to work here. And so it, it illustrates, I think, the, the, the recklessness and the carelessness of these drone strikes. Uh, and, and it is not, this one, while it is an extreme case where everybody killed in the blast is innocent, uh, it is not that unusual uh, that most of the people that get killed in these drone strikes are bystanders. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a common occurrence. We, we know from Daniel Hale's whistleblowing that uh, most, if not all, people in, in many of these strikes uh, are civilians. 
Uh, and the government has made a habit of undercounting or not counting civilian casualties or simply assuming that everyone killed in a blast must be an enemy combatant because they're in the, the vicinity of an enemy combatant. Uh, and of course, many of the people who are identified as enemy combatants are identified that way simply because they happen to be men of a certain age. And so they're, they're, they're probably militants, according to this kind of thinking. And so we don't know how many other cases there are like this one. Uh, the reason that we know as much about this strike as opposed to a lot of the others is that it took place in a heavily populated city with lots of witnesses that the journalists could go and investigate very soon after it happened. Uh, a lot of drone strikes, of course, take place in remote areas where no one's going to go out and be able to corroborate anything. And so uh, the, the military has been able to hide behind uh, lack of transparency and lack of access to these sites uh, to, to keep the drone war going. When I think we can see that the, the drone war uh, is really indefensible at this point. Uh, I mean, if, if there was ever any legitimate security reason for doing it, it has, it has morphed into something uh, that you, you can't really defend anymore. Yeah, and I know that we had talked about him on the show before, but Daniel Hale is actually doing time in jail for blowing the whistle on right. the uh, the drone strikes and how lethal they are uh, have been uh, to civilians. And so that's just another data point there that we put we put those folks in jail who are actually telling the truth uh, about our wars, um, whereas the the architects are are not only running free but actually. Um, making a lot of money right now and being hosted on MSNBC and, and other networks about what they think about the right. war. Um, I, I'm sorry. I think I said that that drone strike in Kabul was last week, but you point out it was August 29th. Uh, but the New York Times piece had just come out, I think, over the weekend Yes, that's right. uh, with the actual uh, details. And, um, you know, we've been hearing about this for 20 years, uh, the number of civilians that have been caught in these blasts. I mean, entire wedding parties have been wiped out uh, by our drone strikes. The uh, Air Wars uh, organization, which has been, you know, cataloging all of the civilian casualties um, and not only by our, our airstrikes, but other countries, uh, across the globe came out with a report just a, a couple of weeks ago uh, saying that they believe that upwards of 48,000 civilians could have been killed over the last 20 years by U.S. airstrikes. And that would include the drone strikes as well as missile strikes um, uh, or bombs or, you know, non-drone strikes. Um, 48,000 civilians. And, right. and and one wonders, and this and this is spanning Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Somalia, Libya, Syria, Yemen. I mean, when we think of the global war on terror, oftentimes uh, we think Afghanistan, Iraq, because that was our, our two front war. We often forget that the authorization for the use of military force in both 2002 and 2003, or 2001 and 2003, have authorized or have been used to authorize all sorts of conflicts in these other countries in which we had been carrying on repeated, continuous uh, airstrikes. And, um, and, I, and, and, and you're right, the lack of transparency has resulted in a situation 
where we hear about these civilians maybe weeks or months after the fact. So it it, it follows this this particular pattern. The the bombing occurs. The Pentagon says that they conducted airstrikes uh, to take out a, a particular terrorist or group. Uh, then there is some investigation on the ground by other groups like Air Wars. You know, witnesses come you know forward, and then it turns out that a there might not have been any terrorists on the ground, or b there was a mix in which children and women and and, and other civilians are killed. And then the Pentagon, and not in every case, comes forward and says, "Oh yeah, there were so there are so many civilians on the ground." But even even Air Wars says that it's impossible to nail down the exact number, mostly because of transparency issues. Um, right. And I'm glad that there are watchdog groups that have been doing all this heavy lifting over the years, but I'm afraid because of their sporadic reporting and the fact that uh, people like Daniel Hale or Chelsea Manning and and and, and Julian Assange um, literally have to risk their lives to get the truth out, that we never get the whole picture of the actual damage that these wars have done. Well, that's right. And the Air Wars has done really impressive work uh, in all of these theaters. They've also been very good in tracking uh, civilian casualties caused by the war on Yemen. Uh, and, and one thing that stands out in their analysis is that they're, uh, they're always finding uh, these uh, civilian casualties that have been caused uh, by U.S. Or, or U.S. client bombings. Uh, and then the U.S. military is, is constantly disputing them and, and trying to, to lowball those figures and, and suggest that, oh, it's only, you know, only a handful. Uh, if you look at uh, the Air Wars website uh, on Somalia, they have tallied uh, the victims of U.S. air and drone strikes uh, up to, I think, 170 civilians. The military acknowledges five. Mm. And, yeah. and that, that gap gives you an idea of uh, how, how big the difference is between uh, what's really happening and what the military is owning up to. Uh, and, and in the war on ISIS, uh, beginning in 2014, uh, the, the number of civilian casualties is many times greater uh, than what is officially acknowledged, uh, simply because the people killed in Mosul and Raqqa and so on uh, simply aren't being counted. It, you know, it, it simply doesn't come up. You know, that's a good and point. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a good point because I don't think, and, I'll, and I'm sorry, I, I don't think that most Americans were very, are very aware of the devastation of that Iraq II war, I call it. Uh, and, you know, the, the when we had to go back in to Iraq to um, help the Iraqis take care of ISIS, that had been taken place in the in the air, mostly on our part. And yeah. I don't think people are really aware of, of of how devastating that was. Right. Well, and when Trump came in saying he was going to bomb the hell out of ISIS, uh, you know, he, he did indeed do that or he, he authorized that. Uh, what he and his uh, cheerleaders don't talk about are all the, the people that live in that city that got killed along with uh, the militants. And, and I mean, Mosul today is still in ruins uh, from uh, the air campaign from a few years ago. Yeah. And, and, and reconstruction is, is slow or non-existent in coming in. So it's, you know, it, it's, I, I think it's, it's important to, to remember uh, that these campaigns do have uh a lot of victims uh, that we never hear about, that we never see, 
and that that has to be factored into thinking about when uh, we use force and, and whether it is justified uh, to keep conducting campaigns like this. Uh, and I, I think, I mean, especially in the, the case of the drone war, uh, the, the connection between the military action that we're taking and the, the security of the United States is very tenuous. Uh, you know, we're, we're killing basically random people on the other side of the planet, uh, most of whom don't even have the means to hurt the United States, much less, uh, and, and many of them may not even have that intent. Uh, the, you know, many of them are caught up in local conflicts that really have nothing to do with protecting the United States. Uh, Something Somalia is a perfect example of this. Uh, we're, you know, we're helping the Somali government fight Al-Shabaab. Uh, Al-Shabaab didn't even exist when the 9-11 attacks happened. And they, they have identified themselves or aligned themselves with Al-Qaeda. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're actually trying to do anything to the U.S. Uh, or, or allied countries. Uh, their fight is with the Somali government. Uh, and we have chosen to, to join in that fight on, on the dubious grounds that they are an associated force of Al-Qaeda. But that really doesn't have anything to do with us. Yeah, and I'm just thinking back at the uh, the Obama administration in which, you know, his administration had sold the drone war as, you know, uh, a cleaner version of counterinsurgency, you know, one that put a distance between U.S. military forces and uh, the the action on the ground so so that we weren't losing as many people. We weren't we didn't have right. as many forces in harm's way as the past. But that that gap, that distance created um, the circumstances that we see today in which you have mistakes made all the time. Um, and also you have this idea now, if, if, if this was the cleaner, better version of counterinsurgency, why was the Obama administration so secretive about its kill list and the, the standards um, at, 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 against which it was choosing targets? And it wasn't until uh, ACLU and others had pushed the administration to release uh, its, I guess its policy, I forget what it was called, uh, and that they came forward uh, acknowledging that they had these kill lists at the White House and that, you know, there was only uh, a couple people, was it, who was it? Was it Mueller? Um, April Haynes, I can't remember. Uh, th there were very small uh, coterie of people in the White House who were actually signing off on this in the dark, in secret. And so it's just it's it's led to a situation where there's no accountability. And uh, just just as an aside, I mean, we know from you know myriad stories that have been done that a lot of these drone operators have had to you know go into therapy. Um, they've had PTSD because as much as there's a distance between the drone operator and their targets on the ground, um, it's almost even uh, more um, excruciating to, to feel like you are just, you have the, a person's life in your hands at the press of a button. And, you know, so we've, we've seen these uh, Air Force uh, pilots uh, talking to reporters about how they couldn't live with themselves anymore, even just going to work every day in some weird hangar or, or silo in Nevada and pressing a button and just mm -hmm. obliterating people on the ground. It was just, it's just too much. Right. Well, yeah. And I think the, the point that they've made is that they, you know, they can suffer moral injury the same as any other 
kind of uh, deployed soldier. Right. And so that it, you know, it is it is still warfare. We you know it is still uh, taking people's lives, and and I think the the reason that they're having trouble uh, dealing with that experience is that it's very hard to understand how firing off these missiles at people on the other side of the planet actually contributes to the security of the United States. Uh, if they could see some direct connection, if they could see that this was being done to prevent some heinous attack, then you know maybe they could reconcile or maybe maybe it could be made to make some sense. But there, there is no connection in most of these cases. Uh, it's it's a, a matter of simply using these countries as firing ranges uh, because you know we think that this is the way uh, to combat terrorism uh, when we know that the, the the problem of terrorism in these parts of the world uh, have has only gotten worse the longer that we've been at it. So uh, what, you know, why are we doing it? Yeah, and I made a mistake back then. I had mentioned Mueller when I was grasping for the name. It was John Brennan. I don't know how I could have forgotten that. John Brennan. Brennan. He was was, uh, the White House counterterrorism advisor who had been working to uh, develop or codify the the policy, the the kill list. Um, The capture slash kill list is what they called it uh, under the Obama White House. And I remember going to a, uh, a conference sponsored by, I think it was Code Pink at the time, And so I would say it was definitely during the Obama administration where we were striking uh, targets in Pakistan all of the time. And, you know, you know, family after family had come forward, Pakistani families saying my child was killed. My whole family was killed. My brother was killed. You know, here's here are the pictures of the devastation in my neighborhood. And we wonder why we have not been able to, um, you know, take care of this quote unquote terrorism problem. Because every time we kill a civilian or a family or obliterate a neighborhood or a set of houses, we are creating a new generation of terrorists. And, you know, we're going to be talking to Jeff Groom in the next segment. Um, but one of the things he talked about was this sort of whack-a-mole that, you know, that the the military has engaged in and, and that this is why, because we have been creating terrorists with every strike and denying it, you know, for 20 years. pleasure of introducing to the show Jeff Groom, who is a former Marine officer and the author of American Cobra Pilot, A Marine Remembers a Dog and Pony Show. Uh, He published that in 2018, by the way, which is a funny, highly critical look at the military institution and all of its contradictions, hypocrisies, waste, and failures. After getting out of the military in 2018, I believe, he started writing, including for the American Conservative, and more recently for me at Responsible Statecraft. I consider him a well-read, reflective, patriotic truth teller, and I'm very glad to have him on the show today. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate it. That was such a humbling introduction. I appreciate it. (laughs) 
So there's so much to talk about given all the recent events in Afghanistan, but I was wondering if you could start out with a personal note. As a Marine who, you know, who is recently, you know, in service, how did you feel uh, as the U.S. was finally withdrawing its troops this summer? And as a conservative, how do you feel when you hear voices on the right, typically coming from Fox News and the like, that everything would have been fine if we had just stayed there in Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I've if you've seen other veterans talk about it too, I think my initial reaction was just, um, it was just disgust and anger. I mean, just the amount of, the amount of lives that were expended there and the amount of money that was uh, thrown down the tube. Um, it was just, it was just kind of a gut-wrenching thing to see. I mean, even though I knew, you know, most of us knew that that was what, what was going to happen, you know, it was still hard to see your country take a loss, even though you knew that, you know, the our rulers aren't, weren't doing what was right it still hurt, you know, deeply to see, you know, the innocent people like the Marines that were killed or Afghans that are being hurt because of it. I mean, that, that all hurts me, but uh, at the same time, you know, you know, talking to the voices on the right that said we were going to, that was going to, things could have been different if we would have stayed longer. I think, you know, you know, as all the other people that we've been writing for the last, you know, five years for me, you much, and you and Daniel much longer is that, you know, that was going to happen in 2003 and 2013 or, you know, in 2021, it didn't matter. So, um, I guess it was better late than never. Um, could it have been done a little bit better? Sure. But, you know, ultimately I do give Biden credit for, you know, finally making this decision to leave. Do you, um, just to follow up on that quickly, do you get a sense that, I mean, and, and I'm probably answering my own question here, but the, the, I don't know, the, the zeal with which these voices on the right are attacking Biden for the withdrawal, is this all partisan uh, partisanship? I mean, Trump wanted to get out of this war as well. And so it does seem a little interesting that now that now the narrative is shifting to, well, we could have stayed in Afghanistan. And if we don't stay in Afghanistan, then, you know, the, the terrorist threat will flourish there in the region. Uh, when just a year ago, we were talking about leaving for good and Trump actually wanted to get out much earlier. Yeah, it's kind of hard to decipher, you know, if they're actually doing it for partisan reasons or they actually believe that we should be staying there uh, longer. I mean, it's, it's kind of like when Republicans are out of office, they always talk about balancing the budget. But when they're in office, they never do anything about it. So it's just kind of like, oh, they're out of power now, so they're going to criticize. But when they're in power, they didn't do anything about it. So to me, I agree with you. It's just kind of it seems very partisan and not actually, you know, based on anything that they actually truly believe. Yeah. I so. So where do we go for here, from here? I mean, I know that you've written pretty extensively about the Pentagon food fights and how each of the services are jockeying and gunning for their share of right. the China pie. You know, because right. everybody's looking at China now. How do you see the Air Force, Navy, Marines, Army, you know, shifting their programs and their policies to adjust to the quote unquote new enemy and the new threats so that their budgets won't have to take a hit now that we're out of Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the defense budget in 2016, you know, it was 611 billion and 20, I wrote this down in 2018, it was 649 billion and 2020, it was 778 billion. So despite the fact that you know, during those years, you know, Trump was slowly withdrawing our presence in Afghanistan at the same time, you know, the whole national security strategy that his his original cadre of generals that he hired, like McMaster and Mattis, those guys that were part of the blob, you know, snuck under, the, maybe not under the radar, Trump signed off on it. It's ultimately his, you know, it's his 
he owns it. But this idea that we have to, or we're going to now enter into great power competition with two, you know, other superpower, I don't know, superpowers, but two definitely large powers, China and Russia, um, and that's definitely underway and it's not going to change under Biden. And I can speak not so much to maybe the Air Force and the Army. I know that they're playing the same game to get those dollars, but I can definitely speak, you know, I've written, you know, in for RS about what the Marine Corps is doing, especially how um, they've, they've said that they're going to slim down. They've got rid of their tanks. They got rid of a couple infantry battalions. And then they're doing this to re, you know, reorient towards China. So, you know, if you, if you say China, 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 you know, you'll, you'll get the, you'll get the attention of, uh, you know, the, the defense hawks in Congress and they'll, you know, willingly oblige you for more money. So that's, that's exactly what's happening is Afghanistan is wound, wound down. You know, we're going to see an, another increase in, you know, alarmism with, you know, potential big war, which is much more profitable than the low scale um, uh, operations that were going on in Afghanistan. And absolutely, Jeff, and thanks for coming on the show. Uh, and while we see this already happening in Congress, where they're throwing more money at the Pentagon, uh, more than even Biden is asking for, uh, House Armed Services Committee just the other day endorsed an increase of another $25 billion on top of uh, Biden's request that brings the top line, I think, to $740 billion. Um, wow. and, and that's higher in real terms than military spending was in the 80s, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we, we have this exorbitant military budget, but as you've written about uh, before, uh, we don't really have the military readiness that ought to go with that. Can you right. shed some light on why that is? Yeah, I mean, so the, the idea with readiness is that you have to have enough, the way I always describe it is you have to have a, a bread to, to feed all the mouths. And so the idea that we came up with after the after the Cold War was over that we're going to have a, the two MRC, the two uh, major regional conflict strategies, we have to be able to fight two major regional wars simultaneously. And that is what allowed them to justify having the military is the size that they were. So, so just for an instance, with the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps has more aircraft than Great Britain. And the Marine Corps is the smallest of all the services. So if you just think about the Navy's planes, the Air Force, the Marine Corps has more planes than just Britain. And, our, and if we have this many planes and only X amount of dollars, you simply don't have enough money to go around to pay for all the gas for the ordnance to shoot. And that's what I was doing. You know, I was a Marine helicopter pilot. So I saw that firsthand where we're like, we have all these helicopters and all these people that we have to pay and, and to maintain and fly our aircraft, but we just don't have enough, you know, bread to go around to feed all the mouths. And the reason we have too many mouths to feed is because it starts at the strategic level at the top with our government's policies. Like we always got to be ready to fight two massive big wars at one time. And so we end up just overbuying and having all this gear that we just simply can't, you know, keep up. Sure. And uh, Kelly, you talked about Afghanistan a bit before, and we, we see now that we're getting out of Afghanistan, the Biden administration is shifting towards talking about the, the terrorist threat from other places and uh, that the war on terror will continue in Syria, Yemen, Somalia, and so on. Right. Um, and so we're, we're using the 2001 AOMF to justify fighting groups that didn't exist in 2001 and can't right. even attack the U.S. Uh, do you think there's a way for the U.S. to break its preoccupation with militarized counterterrorism of the kind we've seen since 2001? That's a great question. Um, a way to break our obsession with the kind. I mean, it's just so easy for them to do now because they have, you know, there's so many, it's just, it's just whack-a-mole. They're playing whack-a-mole with terrorists and they've been doing that for the last 20 years and there's more terrorists now than there've ever been. So if that doesn't let them know that their strategy, you know, if you want to call it that isn't working, I don't know what will, but I think it's just, 
it's become so normal now that it's just so easy to do just to have drones overhead and then they get their human or SIGINT or whatever it is. If you've read, you know, find fix the story, whatever the Glenn Greenwald's book that he wrote with um, the stuff about how they target with drones. It's just so easy to do now that I think that uh, I don't think it's going to let up, unfortunately, anytime soon. It's just, it's just too easy for the state to do. So I, I don't know. I don't know the way that it, which it, it could, it could draw down other than, you know, a, a countercultural president that, you know, says no to it all. Obviously, Obama, you know, expanded the wars incredibly. Trump was okay with it all. Biden's been okay with it. So until we get a true, you know, president like a Ron Paul or a Rand Paul or someone who's really privy to what's going on, I just don't see it changing unless it starts at the top. So, Jeff, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about you, um, because I think with the withdrawal of Afghanistan, a lot of people are all of a sudden paying attention to our military and how yeah. people feel inside the military and how veterans are thinking these days. And, you know, you wrote a book. I believe that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you actually published the book before you got out of the military or right as you were getting out. Yeah, just to give you it. So I wrote the book while I was still in. And then I, you know, I did everything I, I got. I had like hard copies and everything that I knew, that, you know, obviously what I'm writing is, you know, against what they, you know, my superiors <laughs> like and what they say. So like, I'm going to, I have to wait till I get my first amendment back. So I, I basically told the publisher, which is Ex Libra self-publisher that I cannot, you know, go loud with this until, you know, I'm officially severed from the military. So I set all that up. So literally the day that I, uh, um, got my DD-214 and then I was out of the military, I said, you know, watch the book. So yeah, so it came out officially in 2018. I wrote it over the course of 2016 and 2017. Yeah. So tell tell us why you wrote the book and, and what you wanted to convey in it to the general public, to regular Americans who don't know much about what goes on in the military. Yeah. So I, I wrote the book mainly from a sense of moral outrage. I guess that's what initially was my spark to write the book was where I, I started noticing a bunch of, like you said, you know, initially a bunch of contradictions um, in my, in, in my, in the course of my service. And the, the book is centered around an exercise that I was a part of on my first deployment off the coast of Korea. We did an exercise, host nation exercise with the Koreans doing amphibious assault type stuff, which is the Marine Corps bread and butter um, we were told essentially that the exercise wasn't tactical. It was just, you know, a, it was what I, what we call a dog and pony show. It was done just for media and propaganda purposes. And that just, you know, set, set me on fire for the next couple of years to write. But the way the, so the deeper point I tried to make in the book is really it's to talk to the American people about where I, where I see, you know, the relationship between the military and the civilian you know, populace that we serve and then also to bring attention to the, you know, how wrong things are strategically and then the relationship with, you know, the military industrial complex. So that was kind of the two main points. I'm, I'm talking to the civil military divide and then also to, you know, waste and fraud that's going on uh, in the military. What do you see in that civ mill divide that's troubling to you and how did it get worse with the global war on terror? The thing that's the most troubling to me is this, um, it's, it's genuine pa uh, patronage by the American people that want to support the military. They love the military, but the powers that be know that by hiding behind the flag and by, by saying that anyone who doesn't support the war is a quote unquote unpatriotic conservative or whatever, you know, like the words that David Frum used, um, they use that to dissuade any, um, debate or criticism of the wars. 
And the, because of the all volunteer force, we haven't had no one, there hasn't been skin in the game. There hasn't been a draft. Taxes haven't been raised. None of those things have happened or, you know, authorizations for the use of force. So that has really split the all volunteer military from the people that we serve. Uh, and that's what I think is the biggest issue is that the American people, I think a lot of them want to criticize or they, they maybe deep down know that maybe something's wrong, but they they don't want to criticize for fear of being called unpatriotic or fear of not you know staying with the flag. But my, my point I'm trying to get through to them is no, the ultimate form of patriotism is being able to criticize your country and being able to say no, like because I love my country, I don't want to see my country going down this route. Right, exactly. And do you see? I wrote a whole story recently about the impact of 9/11 in our 9/11 wars on the all volunteer forces, but you know, I'm not in the military. So, you know, I talked to people like yourself and got some quotes and got some insights. Um, but, you know, from your perspective, how, how damaging has the last 20 years been on the all volunteer force? I know that Daniel raised the issue of readiness and the budgets and all that, but I mean, do we have a healthy military right now? And are we going to continue to get re recruits when we have just basically, run this thing through, uh, I don't know, just through the, the, the gamut of, of 20 years of mul you know, multiple deployments yeah. and you know the rest. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't think the military will ever have trouble getting, you know, bodies, so to speak, just because they, you know, the, if the price is right, especially with COVID and what it's done to the economy, I don't think they'll ever have a problem with retention or having the amount of people. But I do fear long term that the institution can then become, you know, almost like a de facto mercenary corps where, the people that sign up aren't doing it from a position of connectedness to the people that they serve. They're only doing it, you know, for a paycheck, which don't get me wrong. Like we should pay our military. Obviously if it's a volunteer thing, I get that. Um, and I can't speak for everyone, but I can speak for, you know, myself and quite a few of my friends that were in marine aviation is that we didn't sign up for, to, to, to be comfortable. We didn't sign up to, you know, have an easy life. We wanted to do hard things. We wanted to, you know, kind of be broke off, so to speak. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things that American people don't get about their military is they just lavish all this praise and they want us to have everything, you know, board first with the airplanes, get all these discounts and all these other things. It's like, yes, we appreciate that. But what we would rather have is like a functioning, you know, aircraft every day when we go out to fly it that actually works. That means more to us than, you know, being patronized or getting a fat paycheck. So I think, yeah, in the long term. I think there's the people that have witnessed the wars either from firsthand or people that were like me that, you know, were in peacetime deployments that had saw terrible readiness. And then in the future, you know, think like the generation Xers, they were the ones that their kids are going to be the next generation of the all volunteer force. What are they to think over the last 20 years as they're starting to raise their children when they see, you know, a group of elites that really don't care about, you know, uh, the American people, if you want to call them that, that are the main people that volunteer for the military. I don't know that there's just a, there's a trust issue at this point. If the last 20 years have showed us anything is that in order to get to volunteer, you need to trust and believe in what your government leaders are doing. And if there's a lack of trust, yeah. then I, I, you're going to have a problem with volunteerism. Do you, and I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I mean, is there one thing that you would like to convey to, to listeners, specifically those listeners who are not in the military, they may not have any connection in the military because 99% of us don't. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything that you would like to convey to them about the current state of the, the military after 20 years of war? Mm. 
I know this sounds harsh, but I would tell the young people today, based on what I see doing, I think the most patriotic thing you could do is to not join the military today. I, unfortunately, we have to starve the beast in order to make them change. I really do believe that. If I feel like if you join the military in this day and age, the government will not use you in a way that is good for the American people. I would. I know that sounds so harsh, and I really hate. And I don't regret my service. I I've made some of the best friends in my life. I, I loved what I experienced, but I think it, at this point it is immoral to serve something that uh, does things that are against what our constitution says. Well, that, that was pretty grim, but I, I think it's a, it's a, a, a fantastic point. And, um, you know, given, given everything that, that you've and your fellow service members have gone through over the last 20 years that this country has gone through, the globe has gone through. I think, uh, I think, I think we need a little dose of that, that harshness right now. Yeah. And I think it would be good for, I mean, I I think the only way to change things is, is to do it that way, because at the end of the day, the system relies upon volunteerism. If you take that from them, just like, you know, you, you take away iron from a virus or whatever it is, like there's a way to stop it from replicating. You just have to know which lever to pull. Right. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us on Crashing the War Party. I, I hope you will do so again. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Daniel Kelly. Appreciate it. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.